education, much like art, is liberatory. Mm. I like to create from madness sometimes. We are a pro-Black, anti-racist, all-inclusive environment. Welcome to Venture Visionaries, where we delve into the journeys of those shaping our future. I'm Thomas Igemeth. And today we're exploring a story of dedication, transformation, and impact that is transforming education both in the Bay Area and our nation as a whole. And it starts right in my home of Oakland, California. So I only became a U.S. citizen a couple of years ago. And at that time, I vowed to deeply engage with both the privileges and responsibilities that that entails. Now, the privileges are things like not having to plan my travel months in advance because of visas, just being able to show up and not running the risk of being turned away at the door, as happened to me when I was in Indonesia on my Ugandan passport. Long story. But I think one of the responsibilities is to truly be civically engaged, not just with our national politics, but with the places that I call home. And it's that commitment that led me to discover a remarkable institution amidst the urban landscape of Oakland, just a couple of blocks from where I live, Envision Academy, a place not just of learning, but of thriving, where the joy of students bursting through its grand stone columns speaks volumes of its success. And Envision stands out not only for its vibrant atmosphere, but for its exceptional achievement. 100% of its students meet California's college requirements. It's a far cry from the Oakland average of 60% for black and brown students. And it's a testament to its commitment to educational equity. At the helm of Envision Education, the umbrella organization transforming lives through innovative education models, is Jillian Juman. Jillian's journey from a classroom teacher to the CEO of Envision Education is a narrative of passion, resilience, and visionary leadership. With over two decades in the education sector, she has tirelessly worked to bridge gaps, foster global learning opportunities, and raise student achievement across diverse communities. In our conversation today, Jillian shares the ethos behind Envision Education's success, the Envision Way. This unique approach emphasizing real-world experience and performance assessment is reshaping education to equip students for the challenges of tomorrow. We're going to delve into how this model fosters not just academic excellence, but builds inclusive and sustainable communities of learning. As we navigate Jillian's insights and reflections, we're reminded of the power of education to transform lives and communities. And her distinct leadership exemplifies how innovative thinking and a deep commitment to equity can create environments where every student can envision and achieve their full potential. So join us as we uncover the inspiring story behind Envision Education's impact on student lives, the community of Oakland and beyond. It's a conversation that challenges us to think differently about education, leadership, and our collective future, and reminds us that all of us can have a bigger impact than we imagine if we are only willing to try. Let's get going. And I'm wondering if you can share just a little bit of your origin story mm -hmm. and how you think it's kind of shaped the leader you are today. I feel like there's like five different avenues I want to take on my origin and, and where it goes. And I feel like every year I get a little bit wiser about what that is. But, you know, start out in Oakland 
proud of Oakland. My mom, White, met her husband, my dad at San Francisco State. My dad made it there on the hair of his chinny chin chin through football in the 60s and 70s, oftentimes black men elevated. They fell instantly in love and are very the same, very passionate and out there. It made sense that I was born in Oakland, my sister, my brother, and then we moved to Sacramento. They were both in seeking for diversity. They're seeking Mm. for a place to be able to afford it. Watch them really try to battle without saying things. Because remember, that was the time when you're not supposed to say you see color, right? You're supposed to kind of play hidden. So there was no conversation about race. There was no conversation in a marriage of 20 years where one person was having a very different experience of the world Mm. around the other person. And so Mm. as a little person, I just watched it. I watched two people have all the love in the world for each other, but weren't living the same experience. And I wasn't. I was following my mom, who was brilliant and very white, blonde hair, blue eyes. She was walking Mm. very different kind of world. And I was simulating her and was really shocked when people didn't see us the same or respond to us in the same way or wanted to know if I was adopted. It was just so I watched these two people, very strong, very smart in their own ways, really kind of walk through the pathway. My mom Mm. times went to therapy. I knew how to kind of get what she needed, right? My dad went to drinking and it ultimately killed him. And so I watched, I watched. Mm. So for me, I saw two people who loved me. The people around me also were having different experiences and it didn't seem fair. It didn't seem equitable. It didn't seem right. And so I actually ended up sort of dancing about that, right? I was a dancer. That was my whole world and created things and danced around inequity and race and power. And does it mean to be a woman? And so went to New York City with that vice. And so just led me into this world of how do you give back? How do you give people voice Mm. in a system that doesn't often Mm. and particularly a system that kind of tells you to be quiet about things? That's kind of how I started out and just kind of moved throughout the world. Knowing you, there is a grace and an ease with which you lead and an intuition that does remind me of dance. Mm. I'm just curious as a dancer, does that resonate at all? And, And I'm just curious if there are other ways you think that being a dancer influences the way you now lead through the world of public education. You know, as a choreographer, as a dancer, you see the end result in your head and then you work your way through that. Get people in a place so that they're actually getting to where you need to go with a vision that you see. And oftentimes you can't paint it as clearly as you can and kind of showing and demonstrating and working side by side. There's a a way of kind of dancing through the lines and working through people that I think artists, dancers, painters, right, kind of see where they want to go and then kind of create a platform around that. And I do think the people I work with most closely would probably say that's what it feels like, which has positives and down, you know, it has all kinds of things associated (laughs) dancing with me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll we'll like dig into that like a little yeah. bit later. There's like so much there. How did we get from dancer to classroom teacher and yeah. now to CEO of national education organization? Being in New York City as a dancer means you're a little bit broke. And so <laughs> I started teaching a little bit on the side to afford. I started really in college, right? Like how do you yeah. afford life and just so you t- kind of teaching everywhere? And I do think artists are always teaching in, in some mm. capacity. But that was the way I afforded my lifestyle. And what I actually started seeing is that education, much like art, is liberatory. Mm. It's about making sure other folks are on that dance floor with you, that you're giving them the choreography that they need. I started getting liber- like liberation through the students I was working with, and then slowly started being asked to like lead things, which is not surprising
amazing for artists. Often they are leading and they have a vision around the work that they want to do. And I'm like, sure, right? I'll take some of that summer school class and I'll take yeah. some of the leadership, right? Very not consciously. This was not a conscious mm. into the intuition piece. I do trust that the universe, if I throw out the best for me, if I throw out the best for the people around me, the yeah. universe tells me where to go. Do you think of yourself as an artist first or national organization leader? If there was a shift when that shift came up, and if there isn't, wasn't that shift in that same way, how you do think about kind of yourself? So 2013 is when I did more leadership than dance. It wasn't a conscious choice. I took over a principalship, a a school that was really struggling in New York City in 2012. And Mm. I think I just zoned in. And Mm. life changes, right? You get a little bit older. And it was not, it was an accident and Mm. been a loss ever since. And so I don't think I've started thinking myself as an artist again until about three years ago when folks started commenting on my leadership. Similar to what what you mentioned, what you just see, I think folks are like, how are you making that connection? And for me, all of it is a parallel to a tango, a cha-cha. All of it for me feels very the same. And it was surprising that everybody thinks that way, which is also silly to say out loud. Why would everybody think of it? it, I don't know why. I just wanted everybody to. I'm not sure what happened. Do you see yourself as a transformation versus leader? And if so, how is that played into the kind of roles you've said yes or no to? In the beginning, I chose the hardest things, uh, accident or, or, you know, maybe subconsciously where I was like, what? That's the best. Let me go in there. Right. And really sustaining sometimes feels inhibiting place where I can't have creativity or recreate or build capacity in the same ways. And I admire sustainable leaders, like people who can do that. It takes a whole other skill. It's just not who I am. I like to create from madness sometimes. I think I've selected places where... I needed to grow in that way or wanted to grow. Or if I was put in a place where was doing okay, I found a chaotic corner to build from. Currently, Envision is a beautiful organization and one and there's not chaos. And yet it has so much more potential to be outstanding and stunning in so many places across the nation. For me, that is the little bit of chaos I can play with. What do you think sets the Envision education model apart from traditional schooling methods? Yeah, I think that, you know, we were founded under the belief that a graduate profile, a performance assessment where students are doing defenses actively, that they're doing conferencing where they're actually defending their work throughout their entire learning experience, where they're Mm. actually engaging real world experience is the foundation of who we are. It's not something that we took on. It's not a project we did. It's actually Mm. the foundation of the work that we do. We believe that every single school district, charter school system, a state, city can adopt and should adopt with great partnership a way to think about learning so that by the time kids get to college, the first time they're applying their learning isn't college, which is Mm. really where the mess up happens. Kids go into college and they're shocked because they're being asked to actually apply everything that they're doing in the work that's in front of them or beyond at an actual job. And so building systems that assess kids' risk-taking and curiosity, Mm. ability Mm. to problem solve or say, you're doing that wrong without getting fired, you actually do it, is the key. And so many schools struggle with that and try to figure it out. But we have a system to, to do that. When you think about the impact 
of this learning model on students' lives. Are there certain stories or specific students that come to mind? You know, I, as you were saying that, it made me think of Caleb on our board. You know, he is one of many. I mean, we have two alumni on our board, which says quite a bit, but he will say kind of emphatically that the hardest thing he ever did was do a defense at an Envision school where he had to defend and provide evidence on his learning and how mm. this person not only academically grew, but as kind of a socio-emotional person had to grow. Mm. And he failed his first defense. He was mm. told that he had to do it again. And that experience put him into college and now is doing very well in his work. Mm. He remembers that as being the hardest thing he's done. So by the time he went to college, even though socioeconomically, he experienced differences. Certainly culturally, he experienced differences in his college life. That changed his life. He knew if he could do that and fail get yeah. back and defend again, there is nothing he, there's nothing he can do that would stop him in his future. Yeah. One example, what I've heard year after year of kids talking about that, or even a student most recently who got into Stanford. Yeah. Woo! Um, just <laughs> You're going to get a cheer from me on that one. <laughs> yeah. Just last week, he got into Stanford, one of our many, many students. And what he says is, I credit my school who pushed me. And so mm. there's probably no other gift, particularly someone myself who went to college and didn't do well in the beginning. Mm. That's the gift that Envision has repeatedly over the last 20 years succeeded in doing across the Bay Area and helping other districts to do. It's very exciting. Who makes up the communities that Envision serves today? As you look ahead and you think about where you want to go, how, if at all, do you do you or do you not want that community grouping to change? Yeah. So we serve 98% black and brown students across mm. Hayward, Oakland, and San Francisco proudly. We are a pro-black, anti-racist, all-inclusive environment on purpose. And it's part of the work that we do. We serve also a, a different kind of group across the Bay Area. We have an urban school, a suburban urban. Both have different challenges and beauties in both of those. Mm. And then we have an, an industrial urban. And so that allows us to kind of really think about how the work can grow and expand, not only across different religions that we're serving, all the differences that make up our communities, but also how do we make sure that we're inclusive as we go across the nation? So it's a smart group of kind of different locations of our schools to kind of make up our learning. One of the things I think about is how divided our country feels like right now yes. along lines of identity and how it's easy to catastrophize, but it does feel certainly, and, and I'm an immigrant to this country, it has never felt harder at a national level in the national conversation to speak across identity than it does today. What could we learn from what you guys are doing to help the national conversation? When you walk on to an Envision school, it was funny, I was just talking to somebody right before here and she visited one of our campuses and said, I have never experienced just so many young adults who are so confident in who they are. Exactly my thought. When I came to Envision first time myself, I was also struck by that. There was a level of confidence that kids are talking. I was just in a school yesterday. A sixth grader came up and shook my hand and was just like, hello, welcome, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, welcome to you too, friend, right? So it's just... I do think that there is a level of infusing identity as part of the conversation that mm. happens in mm. a single unit and lesson that happens. How does this impact you? How does this impact the perspective of others? But more importantly, how you think about your own self. That doesn't mean a teacher has to be an expert on all identities. And mm. that's really important because sometimes we think we need to be an expert and then kind of man or woman splain identity to kids who are very much so are more aware of their identity than many adults are because we actually lose some of that as we grow. Mm. So how do we 
lift up and expand it so that kids can actually say, this is who I am. And this is actually who I want to be as I grow, which is Mm. part of curriculum and work that we do under our assessments is we actually need to give kids opportunities to deeply analyze how they are seeing themselves in the work that they do and the people that they are. And Mm. so the impact of that, that work, that close work and, and every teacher not being an expert on other identity, but being an expert on their own identity, which is also Mm. adults have to do that work. That process, which happens in projects, it happens in conversations. It happens when we saw kids dissecting the, the constitution One kid being like, step aside, miss, I have to investigate, right? Like there's a level of, this is the work that I own and I am a part of it and all the facets that I am. We don't see that in every school around the country and we must. That's my advice around the country is like, let's not be afraid to lift up identity, even if it is very different than our own and allow Mm. people to unpack it by themselves. I'm really curious how your identity as a Black woman in particular has influenced your approach both to leadership and decision-making in the education sector. It changes for me all the Mm. time as I'm trying to impact what is it about my womanness, my Blackness, my leadership, like all the components. And somewhere along the line, I also didn't merge those identities either. So that's something I'm kind of thinking a lot about. I think for me, I'm always consciously thinking about the different experience and the perspectives that we're having, right? Kind of bringing it back to my story. I saw very different people living together, loving each other, having very different experiences. For me, I think that I'm always aware of others' perception of me and always curious about it. That's something that Mm. kind of navigates it. I also always see myself as someone that needs to be of the divide. I need to sit in the divide. So if there is a dichotomy of difference, I need to actually uncomfortably sit there to kind Mm. of say, what is it? There's a responsibility there, not only because I'm a black woman, I'm also biracial and I can't, I have privilege and it is my job to actually sit in that privilege and say, what are we looking at? It's also my job. I think a lot about breaking the stereotype that black women are all one way. We come Mm. in different ways, have different perspectives, have different thoughts. That's what makes us who we are and the brilliance we have. It is part of my job to expose my thinking very publicly, Mm. allow for biases and conjecture to, to be squashed and allow for other black leaders in the room to be who they are. I see it as a a really an opportunity of freedom and liberation in moments and a lot of weight and carry that I carry to allow other people to have more brilliance than maybe I had or somebody gave to me. Running a consulting firm and running like a group of schools does not feel like typically the job that one person would have. (laughs) I'm curious what you think of as like the challenges and benefits of leading really this kind of two-headed hydra of an organization. I'm going to start with challenges because I think you just mentioned it. It is. It's two heads that could run by themselves. The work there is around balancing what is okay to kind of run by itself and what actually is not. And that question itself is exhausting even when I say it. Right. (laughs) I think that's probably the hard part. You don't want to constrain one because you want the other to grow. So it's it's, Mm. the beauty of it. And why I was really excited about this position is that the foundation of who we are is the foundation. Also, the where charters were founded, which is 
we need to make sure that we are giving the best and the brightest schools and we're creating lab sites where we can practice great practice for other people to have. It's not to to contain and then compete, right? Like that's not the structure. Though sometimes we do that with systems because we're trying to maintain what we have, but that's actually not the intention. So what I love about our work and the potentiality of this work is that we can really live our dream, which is like, how do we get other people stronger, better, faster? We are trying to solve in 20 years, maybe the schools around us who are doing graduate profile work and are doing great defenses, we're no longer needed in that way. Mm, mm. That is what, you know, and that's probably, this is the first time I've had this in my career where we're actually saying that, which is like, what if we're not needed? What if, Mm. what if it's expanding so that we can actually do something else with people or, or if people are doing colleges on this work, right? There's a beauty about that. That's actually a deep belief in system and our Mm. education and our democracy and Mm. other across this country. That's pretty profound. And it's actually where I live. If we look out and just think about education, public education in the Bay Area today, the system and market that you're in, where are we succeeding our students? Where are we failing them? Our kids are getting into college and some of the top colleges around around the country. Our Black students are at, we're at 100% last year. It's lots of data, which is sad to say and true. So kids are getting access and opportunity that is very exciting. You know, good educators across the nation are always like, we're failing in these ways. And it probably makes a good educator. In general, I'm really worried about kiddos, our kiddos, all nations kiddos, and being able to work through college after having such a year, several Mm. years in the pandemic, where that requires a level of intervention and collaboration with universities that we've never had before. And we've historically have relationships with colleges, but we've never said, let's actually track our students and help them there. We need to make sure we're doing. So we're now going into year 13, where we're working with our Mm. partner beyond 12 to actually start tracking and working with kids in year 13. That's something that's new. How do we kind of make sure our kids are actually sticking in university and where they need to go? We also, I think, want to deeply kind of think a little bit about math and STEM. Mm. It's a place where our country is struggling. We certainly have seen it. How are we going to kind of fill in the gap that's there and make sense that we're closing what's necessary because kids have had learning gaps and, yeah. and the work and teachers have been hard to receive. I'm thinking a lot about math most recently and then finding the best highly qualified teachers across the nation. What do you think we don't understand sufficiently about the experience of a teacher today that we need to? What more could we be doing to address this? And kind of how are you thinking about building up that kind of next crop of great envisioned educators? This is what probably everyone is trying to think about. Right now, we're diving deeply into partnerships are dedicating their time. There's a lot of nonprofits that have opened most recently to kind of say, how do we, how do we find our HBCU future teachers? And so we're really focusing on the partnerships to say, if you can bring in two or three of your top teachers or top potential teachers or academics, we can kind of take it from here and do some coaching and development on this side. We're kind of really thinking about partnering around teacher programs in a different way. We've always done Mm. partners, but like, what does that really mean to cultivate that even at the community college level? The other one that I was, you know, the FBI does a mini boot camp for high school kids. What high school kid knows they want to be in the FBI? You know what? <laughs> right? Like who who did? Yeah. But you know what? The FBI is even thinking about yeah. what does it mean to build problem solving skills and get kids excited about kind of being part of the country in that way. And so it makes me think about what is our responsibility to actually start engaging high school kids 
and, Mm. you know, pre-college kids and the conversation around the beauty and the profession of teaching. But I'm also thinking a lot about what teachers are asking for is flexibility. So what does it mean to seek funding so that we can have more teachers on? Because right now, most schools are kind of bare minimum, one teacher, right? Like really, but what does it mean to have like a bunch of folks available so that you can actually staff it where you have different shifts of teachers that are available to build relationships with kids and teaching, which is like a counterintuitive thing to say during a, a teaching crisis. On the flip side, would we have a teaching crisis if teachers could have the flexibility that they need. Who do you think of as the mentors and major influencers in your own life? I've had some really profound women leaders who Mm. saw me when I didn't see myself. When I include that, I think about dancers and I also think about, I've had influential folk, Catherine Dunn, amazing leaders. And then I've had superintendent leaders who have just kind of said, I see you run and I need you to run. And I think the folks who have just really opened doors and have allowed me to explore, because that's the way I learn. I learn, I explore, I come back, I reflect, and then I need to do it again. And I think so many, particularly women leaders, there's competition. And instead, I've had women who have said, the only way I get lifted up is if you get lifted up. So let's go. Mm. I think currently I have a lot of kind of colleagues and who I can look to and say, this thing sucks. And they can just say, let's figure it out. You know, my mom was a different kind of leader than I am, but she, from a very young age, I watched her navigate change management and Mm -hmm. think out loud. She was unafraid to kind of say as a woman, like, that's just not going to work for me. I caught on to her drawing lines and boundaries that I think a lot Mm. of people haven't learned. So thanks for letting me reflect on that. It's a a few women leaders that I'm thinking about. Kathy Pellis in New York City, shout out, and my mom. How would you define your mother's leadership style overall and and where the points that it aligns with and is like different from yours? Oh, too funny. My mom is bold and Mm. afraid to say, no, this, this is what a leader does and I need to do that. She was also unafraid to kind of make new ideas that I think other people thought were kind of crazy or out of the box. She also inspired people to follow her. There's a similarity in the, in the thing that I am not afraid to imagine or make up something, right? I can, I can go for it and people will follow and make it better. And she also taught me that too. I think the ways that we are different probably has a lot to do with our identity. I think that there's ways that she can stand up and say things where I think I have learned for good and bad reasons, to navigate change management from the bottom up versus top down. I've had to kind of build buy-in or kind of gradually kind of build folks towards where they want to go. She worked in foster care. I worked in education, which is, is yeah. you know, similarities and difference. So I think that feels like from an identity perspective, from a dancer place, I, I like to tango with people and she would not prefer to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, there's the floor, go get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How would you say that you are shifting some of the culture at Envision? And how is the culture at Envision shifting you? Oh, I'm going to start with Envision shifting me. You know, mm. I think Envision's culture was was a lot healthier than I am. So I work 24 hours a day and actually kind of like it, which is probably, mm. you know, it's problematic to say that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a sexy look, nor should anybody do that. And I would say a downfall of one of my leadership in the past is I don't think I really, I said everyone, please take breaks. But then they saw me working all the time. And that's actually not, that's not great. Envision is, you know, we work hard, we work hard, we work hard. And then we have our weekend. 
And it's built and baked into the culture that feels very healthy. And immediately when I got in, I felt that shift and I I made a conscious choice to not shift it. This Mm. is a place where I need to actually learn boundaries for myself and and for others. So I also think that this is probably one of the most mission-driven community in the sense of I've always been privileged where I've worked. I've always had really smart, ambitious folks, but this is a group that's like, if I go in and say, look, we got we to gotta make sure we're aligned to our pro-Black vision, everybody's like, yes, let's get it. There's a community that already has, has existed that I can actually- yeah. And and be a part of versus having to like set a new tone in that way or be the person speaking that word, right? I think where I'm shifting the organization is around really thinking about building capacity of leaders and what it means to be a leader. And part of that is this dance of the, you need to be on the dance floor for some things, but you need to pull back up. Otherwise you're really constraining the work of others. You're Mm. not allowing other people to lead. And frankly, we need people to lead the sheep ship after we're gone. That's a new concept. It was funny when I when I got there, this is not uncommon, but somebody said to me, don't worry, I don't want your job. And I was like, well, somebody's got to have it at some point. Yeah. <laughs> somebody's got to want it. Yeah. So the philosophy around like, we actually thrive and want to build leaders is something that's new. And I think both scary and invigorating. I'm also curious what the experience of coming back home Mm -hmm. to Oakland in some ways has been. And I'm thinking about that in two lenses. What feels familiar? What feels uncomfortably unfamiliar, if at all? And then how do you think about community when you've up and moved yourself from L.A.? I think I'm struggling with describing how it feels. It feels like coming home. And I'm not quite sure why, because I was a very young person. You know, I moved here when I was moved out of here like at four. I lived mm. down my preschool, which immediately I remembered when I got here. I'm not sure why. I also know that this was the time my parents were most healthy. So there, there's mm. got to be something imprinted there. I feel spiritually connected. I think what un- feels unfamiliar is I'm used to knowing who to call t- for someone who wants to invest in our work or think about what's happening. And so I know folks in New York City, I know folks in LA, out here, the platform's just new of who to call and who to connect with. And so that, yeah. I hate that. I hate being a stranger. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's what it, that's what it feels like, and I'm still slowly building that community. I've been trying to figure that out. I define that as an adult who's like spent most of her adult career in New York City in Brooklyn, particularly. And I think mm. that some part of me also feels that's home. LA, I was there for four years, wonderful, but wasn't home. And then now here, and I'm not sure how to define community, but I do know where I feel comfortable. It's where I'm most understood. What is something about yourself that you think people often struggle to understand <laughs> that you wish that you wish they didn't? You wish it was easier to convey. I laugh because there's just so many. <laughs> <laughs> I think the number one is that I compartmentalize my head and heart and say, wow, this is really a pain in the butt but I really care about you, right? Like those feel like two separate comments. And for a lot of folks, that's really hard for them to understand carrying two different things there. I always get shocked as to why that's so hard. Mm. And I explain So I've started to use like my intuitive side versus my head or my head mm. and heart like a superficial dichotomy. It's just that most things have two or three perspectives on them. You don't have to like make a choice all the time. I actually think that really helps with leadership because you don't have to see things one way. You can see them in so many ways. 
I often say, I don't really care how we get to the end result. You can take any pathway or any dance you'd like. But I also think that's hard. I see it as a gift, but I don't think many people do. <laughs> I might be alone on that, Thomas. <laughs> you, might, you might be alone on that. I mean, you beautifully just defined dialectical thinking for yeah. us, right? The two ideas yeah. can be true at the same time. Why do you think that is so easy for you? Art teaches you that there's multiple mm. ways to look at something. My mm. family dynamic taught me that you mm. can have two, three, four different lives into one. I was also raised by my grandmother who was from Arkansas. The first black person she ever saw was my dad. And I saw her change. She was multiple things. She was a white woman from Arkansas who made her own butter and then moved into being the first person in her neighborhood in the fifties to buy her own place to having a biracial granddaughter. I think I saw dichotomy. So my whole world, I think, is built on there's just not one right answer. I'm thinking of three people. Jillian at age seven. Jillian circa 2013. And the third is Jillian about to take this new role as CEO of Envision. Hmm. What, what would you say to each of them? I think at age seven, I think I would have said, it's all going to fall into place. Just trust it. I think I was in a place of... I'm different. I was the only black student. So I I was, I didn't know where I fit in. 2013, I would have said, don't lose your craft. You lose a piece of yourself if you lose your craft. I don't have many regrets in my life, but that's one of them. And then for right now, I, I think I would say that your questions are the right ones. I'm asking a lot of questions that I both know and don't know the answer to. And I'm asking them for a reason. I need to trust that. Fast forward 10 years into the future, what do you hope is the same and what do you hope is most different about Envision? I hope that what's same is that we are a group of people that are really committed to each other and the work that we want to do. It is true. We still take off on weekends. (laughs) Uh, That is a smart way to work. So I'm hoping that that the synergy remains the same because it really is special. My hope is that we have really built a foundation in in most states across Mm. the nation so that schools can get the resource that we have. So right now we are big and hot and heavy in Kentucky, but I want to be the same in Philadelphia. And I want to give back to New York City, my home. And maybe even, you know, we're in China now, but we can expand from that too. I'm looking at you, right? So as Mm. a person, I want to be able to talk through strategically from both a personal place and a very professional place around how we actually are kind of growing and developing as an organization so that it's a formula. Do I want to make sure our schools are a lab site and an example for schools across the country? I want to make sure that as we're growing as an as an organization, how we're navigating the pandemic, we're yeah. alongside everybody that we are actually offering organizations. I'm offering to organizations. This is where I failed. And this is where I, I, we really succeeded because we don't need other CEOs can do it better Step mm. on my shoulders. Right. I think I, I owe that to other leaders, particularly leaders of color, but, but to across the nation, you need to learn from us just like I want to learn from them. Now it's time for Spoken Stories, our recurring segment where we hear from the people who make up the organization. This week, I got to talk to four members of Envision Education's amazing team. Josette Neil DeStanton, their assessment design partner. Omar Bryan, their data manager. Joel Key, the associate director of talent and HR. 
and Heidi Jones, who serves as vice principal at City Arts and Leadership Academy. Let's hear what they had to say. I think one of the many things that makes Envision so special is the consultancy strand that we have, which is Envision Learning Partners, which I'm a part of. And as an assessment design partner with ELP, I get to travel around the country helping districts build stronger, high quality assessment systems for students um, so that they are really getting into deeper learning. And it also aligns with Envision's pro-Black anti-racist stance that is weft throughout the entire school system. In the 15 years that I've been at Envision, the thing that has made it special for me is watching students that I've taught graduate, go on to college, and then make their way back to Envision to become teachers. That, as a teacher, as an educator, is what makes it special for me. And to then see that their siblings choose to be here, to see that their extended family members choose to be here, um, and our staff and our families continue to choose to be here. Envision is special 100% because of the people. And I know that there are great people everywhere. Um, and I think that there's something about uh, Envision folks, the special sauce from students to their parents and caretakers to our teachers and our school site employees and our district office employees. I've been here for almost 15 years. And the way that we collaborate for student success is really special. I just love it. There's a lot of things that make Envision special. One of the most important things, I think, is the personal relationships that are from top down and from school sites to families and communities and partnerships. Everyone is known by name. Everyone is known by their goals and aspirations. And everyone is encouraged to be their best self. Because it is such a small network, it makes it so special. Now, it's awesome to hear from the adults who make up the leadership of Envision Education. But ultimately, this organization exists to serve the middle schoolers and high schoolers who make up not just the future, but present of our nation. And so I got some time with one Envision student, Danny Kamparin, and I had just one question for them. What makes Envision special? Here's what they had to say. Envision is an involved community with teachers that encourage you to challenge yourself while providing support. The close-knit environment that Envision fosters makes it easy to create friendships and also connect with partner organizations like the YMCA's Research Board with UCSF or SEO Scholars, which I am both a part of. Everything I've experienced here has helped me believe in myself and who I will be in the future. Now, there's so many things I love about Envision Education in general and Jillian Juman as a leader in particular. Her strategic chops transform spaces again and again, and she's able to assemble remarkable teams around her, working on what I would argue is one of the most pressing issues in America today, transforming K-12 education to make sure that it serves every American child. But the thing that I'm left struck by most as I reflect on my conversation with Jillian is the authenticity in the way that she does this. Jillian is unapologetically herself. And that humor and joy and grace seeps through everything she does, the fun stuff and the hard stuff. I know from working with Jillian as a CEO 
And I've seen firsthand as a board member, the impact of that authenticity on the people around Jillian. In her, I'm reminded that while what we do matters, who we are as we do it matters even more. And my hope for you this week, dear listener, is that you would find the energy and inspiration to be the fullest, most authentic version of yourself as you lead wherever you are this week. The world can't afford anything less. As always, I'm Thomas. I'll see you next week.